Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. The name of my show is The Authentic Woman. We offer perspectives on the female experience in America, and I had the great pleasure a couple weeks ago of producing an event that is part of the Beyond Barbie performance series that stemmed from an art show by executive producer Susan Singer, and it has expanded and turned into an annual series of events that that really celebrates women, and this year the underlying theme was touchy topics. Obviously, religion and politics are at the top of the list, and the show that I hosted was on the topic of political polarization, and I had a fantastic guest named Catherine Rood, and she is a linguist uh, with extensive experience studying political polarization and the language used to really polarize people politically and in society in general. So my show tonight is a recording of that event, and I'm excited to be able to share it with you. I'm thankful to Susan for allowing us to use the Beyond Barbie show uh, as part of the Authentic Woman. So it's a partnership between Authors on the Air and Beyond Barbie. There is a slight bit of distortion in the recording. Uh, It it sounds like Catherine and I are on auto-tune a little bit, so just uh, pretend that that's the way we meant for it to be, and sit back and enjoy the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Michael Lowndes, with PML Media at pmlmedia.com. They are our website professionals. I thought I'd start the second half by reading a poem. It's actually a poem that I wrote um, called Common Ground. And it's just kind of, I think, to change the energy in the room and and bring us back to a place where we're looking to, to find some healing, and then we'll talk about some strategies from there. No common ground, the prejudice say. The American people cannot find a way to come together as one. But they must be mistaken. America is a perpetual haven for freedom and opportunity to become a maven of whatever we desire. And it fuels the fire that pulls us from the mire of poverty and depression. People are stockpiling guns, gas masks, and survival gear. What's once seemed ridiculous is now very real. It isn't our enemies on foreign soil that they fear. It is the ranks within our own that threaten and sneer. The fabric of our nation that must be sewn so tightly together that the only matter able to reach us is the warmth of the sun or the kiss of the rain to nurture our bodies and replenish the plains. Enough of fighting tyranny only to become an enemy of others who would also fight for similar rights. And the freedom to choose whatever they like. Harness the power of the collective to elect and reject. Our votes and our letters will help to correct the damage being done to rights and liberty and keep our society on the right side of history. Regardless of station, do we not all love our nation? We cannot wear blinders and talk about binders of women while their rights are being attacked. The time is now to open our eyes and see what lies ahead and what we lack. Life as we know it is not so different. Every Dick, Jane, and Barry, none of us is ignorant. Right and left together, we must not be belligerent. With signs we march and we make the cry. As we try to correct what we fear might reject, the soul of this nation so dear to our hearts, protesters are beaten and detained by the finest who have sworn to protect us, respect us with kindness. By ejecting the people with force and might, They deny our free speech and assembly rights. Where are these protectors when groups of hate gather in anger to put up a gate between men, women, blacks, whites, gays, and straights? We must uncover the sacred ground of agreement. Cultivate it, debate it, discuss it, and feed it. Tear down the fences that elevate defenses. If we must fight, let us fight to reunite. 
But as we try to become a nation of one, some feel the rules of a holy son, whose ancient laws were written in sand, should be the practice of our precious land. For freedom of religion, our founders fiercely fought, not for naught. We must separate absolutely our church and state in order to maintain our nation's great. While we fear it might be impossible or senseless, we must do our damnedest to reach a grand consensus without resorting to legal or violent offenses and understanding that we are all in the trenches, that under absolutely no pretenses, all of the people polled in our census love our dear homeland and are willing to say while extending their hands, we are in this together and committed to weather any storm comes our way in the USA. Tomorrow and today, our brothers and sisters, we will not betray. We will put aside this power play that leads us astray and pulls us away from one another and a better day when civil liberties were promised to stay and freedom in America was not a cliché. We must erase laws and ideas that make our future hazy. Stand up for something. Stand up with your neighbor. Gather your siblings, friends, father, and mother. Meet on your sofas. Be sisters and brothers. Meet to discuss in what ways we are able to form bonds together and then pledge that we... We'll never again a civil war see. Thanks. And I, I think that that really kind of speaks to where we are in America right now. The, the right thinks they're right, the left thinks they're right, and nobody can agree, but we have the only way that we are going to make any movement is to find common ground. And it's very difficult to do when we don't feel like we have anything in common whatsoever. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people here are probably politically active, and, and they think of the people in the opposing party, uh, whichever side, and think, I can't find anything that I like about that party's platform, about what my neighbor thinks. You know, my neighbor is a right-wing nut job. My neighbor is a left-wing nut job. I mean, these are the terms that we're using in our own daily vernacular. You know, that's not on talk radio. It's not in the media. It's around our dinner tables. It's at family gatherings. And in order to facilitate some healing, we've got to do it on a very micro level. I mean, yes, we've got to address it on a macro level, but we've really got to talk to each other and figure out a way to not, you know, split families because the fight arose at Thanksgiving dinner and we're even polarized by sports teams. Uh, People stop speaking to each other over over that kind of... So it has absolutely, it's insidious and it's trickled down to every aspect of our society. Some say that it's a good thing, you know, to have competition and to be fired up and, and I, you know, getting fired up is a good thing, but getting too fired up is, is something that we need to try to stop. I've done a lot of, a lot of work in the last few years for uh, for women's rights and uh, was at the Capitol on March 3rd when, you know, all of the arrests happened. And yeah, it was really, that was really kind of the beginning of the polarization about reproductive rights in Virginia. Um, I mean, th- there had been things that were bills through the General Assembly, but nobody was really paying attention. And then when the transvaginal ultrasound bill came up, you know, the people who are anti-choice were thinking, this is fantastic. This will deter women from having abortions. And the people who were pro-choice were thinking, this is ridiculous. We have to fight it. And so everybody mobilized. And we haven't seen stuff like this in decades in the United States. I mean, we've, you know, we've had activists, we've had lobbyists, but since the Occupy movement started, that was really kind of the rebirth of everybody getting together in our country and fighting for things. Going back to the uh, linguistics, you know, I, I put together a list of words that people use to describe women. And these are, in any conversation you have at the water cooler, these are words that evoke an emotional response. 
and they're used interchangeably without a thought, and I would like to list them. Angry, bitch, crazy, cunt, drama queen, defensive, emotional, exaggerating, feminazi, hypersensitive, lesbian, misandry, opinionated, overreacting, and slut. I think a lot of us hear these in conversations and we, we use these terms and we hear these terms without thinking about the negative connotations, uh, the emotions that we're evoking by having a conversation and describing someone as a slut and, and using that derogatory term then immediately evokes a negative reaction about that person, which polarizes that person, and it's just all downhill from there. And so I think we all need to really start thinking about the vocabulary that we use. Um, you know, certainly, I mean, to the extent in, in talk radio, it is extreme, but it's almost as extreme in a different way between us in private conversations, and that's something that really needs to change. And so uh, a recent decision uh, by the Supreme Court has brought about affirmative action issue again, and that's an extremely polarizing issue. And that affects women as well as, you know, different races. And so the, the decision of, of whether to take sex and race into account when uh, having people apply to schools or jobs or whatever, and it's been polarizing since the beginning, since the beginning of the civil rights movement, you know, affirmative action has lots of people are for it and lots of people are against it. And so um, it's still going before the court. They're passing laws, and the most recent case, they actually voted choose to allow affirmative action to continue. Um, and the Supreme Court shot it down and said, no, you are not allowed to take um, sex and race into account when you are accepting people to colleges and universities. Chief Justice John Roberts is frequently quoted as saying, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. You can't argue with that. And that is not a polarizing statement. I, I think sometimes it's tried to, you know, to be held against him, um, but it's clearly the truth. The manner in which we do it is the question, and the necessity of how much we need to do it is the question. And that's where we need to be careful when we're having conversations with people. Because we don't know what we're going to encounter. We don't know what kind of racism or sexism we're going to encounter. Um, and it's really easy to get escalated really quickly uh, if, if anybody is triggered by anything. You know, I mean, if you are offended by something or you are against the idea of something, regardless of which side you're on, it's really easy to get your backup. Well, and it's just not good. Uh, so I, I made a list of the major polarizing issues, and I'd like everybody to just kind of uh, think about the conflicts that probably we have all had with all of these issues. Medicaid expansion, that's been a really hot one lately. Um, income taxes, we're always fighting over income taxes. Every level of taxes is something that's been contentious from the beginning of time. The minimum wage, whether there should be a minimum wage and if there is a minimum wage, what it should be. Job creation, how should we create jobs? A lot of states are trying to do that through creating transportation measures. And so I think everybody agrees that the transportation measures are a great idea to create jobs. The debate comes where, where are we going to get the money for the transportation and, and how are we going to you know, facilitate this job creation that we all really need. Immigration. Everybody's got a strong feeling about immigration. If you know someone who is an illegal immigrant and they're facing deportation and they have a child that's in the States, people have very strong opinions about the citizenship of the child, the citizenship of the parent, and the way that it should go. A lot of people disagree. Drones. 
everybody's got a strong opinion about it. And especially when you talk about war, we use words like murder, killing, extermination. They do evoke a reaction in all of this that make it almost impossible to have a civil conversation. But it is possible to have a civil conversation even if you completely disagree with the person who's next to you. Fracking, uh, there are a lot of environmental issues that people don't agree on. Um, Drilling for uh, natural gas is causing some environmental disturbances and the question is how much is worth Um, how much disturbance is worth the fuel and how much the fuel is worth the disturbance and people have really strong opinions. I personally see both sides. Uh, The Keystone Pipeline. What is the environmental impact going to be and what is the impact going to be on our fuel supply? Because we're getting most of our fuel supply from the Middle East. So things aren't really quite so stable over there. It goes back to the war topic and the drones topic. So it all goes together in every conversation we have and it doesn't have to be about politics. You know, we talk about the price of gas. And that can take you to a place where you're having an argument just because you started a conversation about the price of gas. Climate change, income inequality, guns, gun control, uh, where guns should be allowed and where they shouldn't. You know, some places allow them in bars, churches everywhere, and then places like D.C., they're not allowed at all. Is there common ground? Is there common sense uh, legislation that we can enact that's going to make everybody on both sides happy? Uh, the legalization of marijuana, pardoning and commuting the sentences of drug offenders. All of these things are they're, they're now. We talk about them all, and hopefully we can use a couple of the strategies I'm about to, to give you to have better conversations on a micro level so that maybe we can trickle up. Instead of the trickle-down effect, we can trickle up and uh, bring some positivity and love and good energy into our conversations with friends and family and uh, transfer that up to the state legislatures, to you know, well, to, to the local governments, to the states, and then up to the national. Um, and if we're the people that are writing our Congress people, and we're the people that are going down to the, you know, the General Assembly and talking to our legislators, if we come with a non-polarizing tone, perhaps we can get more accomplished. I mean, right now the General Assembly just uh, adjourned without passing a budget because they can't agree on Medicaid expansion. Each side blames the other. Right now, we don't have a budget in the state of Virginia, and the General Assembly is adjourned, and that's not the first government shutdown in the last 12 months that we've had to deal with, and how freaking crazy is that? Shutting our government down because we can't agree. So there have been some situations in politics and government that I've encountered that have have really caused caused rifts. I've, I've, I've seen them happen, and things started on one level and then went to another. You know, these things escalate so quickly because there are people who like to fight, and there are people who are always looking for a fight. It's insidious, and so we've got to find ways to deflect that. And that's one of the strategies that we need to do, is when we're talking to somebody, there's no winning. And no matter what you say, they're going to come at you, and it's going to be a personal attack. You just have to say, well, we're going to have to agree to disagree. I I respect your opinion. Thank you for giving your opinion, and you are absolutely entitled to it, but I'm just going to walk away now. And it's hard for us to walk away because a lot of times we feel like walking away is defeat. It feels like defeat, but I think we we have to accept that sometimes it might need to look like we're losing in order to keep the peace. There's no winning if you stay and let it escalate. It's only going to get worse. And, you know, I mean, sometimes we have to stop ourselves and check ourselves and just run like hell. Get out of the situation, get away. You know, I don't care if it's Thanksgiving dinner, go to a restaurant. One thing is we can try to find common ground. And I think there always is common ground. You know, go to the Keystone Pipeline issue. 
we agree that we need to find sources of oil that are not from the Middle East. So we all agree on that. We can start. We, we, we can all agree there. And if we can get two people to say, okay, I agree, great. That's one positive little step. A lot of times we have to listen with the intent to understand. We don't listen because when someone is talking, we're thinking about what we're going to say. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're, they're talking and we're nodding our head because we think that we know what they're going to say because it's talking points or it's rhetoric. And we're waiting for them to stop talking so that then we can start talking. And we really need to listen with the intent to understand. Because if we understand the other person's perspective, even if we disagree with it, we can have civil conversations about it. I understand that you feel this way because blah, blah, blah. I feel this way because blah, blah, blah. And we need to bring facts into it. Uh, arguments are really emotional. So we all need to know our facts. We need to know our statistics. You can actually win a debate if you have the facts and you can use the facts um, in your favor. And I think that's really kind of the only way that we're going to make any large political progress is putting the emphasis on the facts of every single issue um, and how it affects every single American, and we need less emotion. And we need to not do personal attacks. All of these seven strategies that Catherine was talking about earlier, they're meant to evoke a negative response. They're meant to provoke an argument. And if we go to that personal level of personally attacking somebody, it's never going to go well. We need to be willing to be wrong, and we need to deflect. If you have to take alcohol away from family gatherings, if you have to meet in a public place, if you have to um, invite someone new because you know that people are on good behavior when somebody they don't know is around, you know? Adding some positive energy into what you know could be uh, a tense environment. You know, bringing in somebody, bringing a puppy. You know, everybody sees a dog and smiles. You can't, who doesn't smile when they see a little dog? Right? And so there are a few issues that are, that are coming up. Most people think there is no discrimination on the base of sex in the United States. I'll read the Equal Rights Amendment. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. That's it. It fits into a tweet. It's a very, very simple concept. It was passed by uh, Congress. It was sent out to the states to ratify You'd think it would be a no-brainer. You have to have two-thirds of the states to ratify an amendment to the Constitution. We couldn't get two-thirds of the states to ratify. Um, we still need three more states, but Congress set a deadline for the ratification, so the deadline has passed, so it is now null and void. Well, with the resurgence of the activism and the resurgence of the women's rights movement, people started thinking, hey, Let's get this ERA thing going again. People seem to think that it was uh, that it was already passed. Well, let's work toward it again. And it's shocking how much how much they're encountering resistance for that. And so, I mean, you think of something as simple as those words that fit into a, a tweet is something that is dividing our nation and that we can't get done. Think of Obamacare, you know, the Affordable Care Act. I mean, you've got thousands of pages of legislation. If we can't agree on 140 characters or less, we're screwed. So, I mean, I think we really need to pick our battles. You know, I, was, I went to the Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership at UVA in 2002, and I don't know if you guys have, have heard about this. The purpose of it is to learn to work with people on the other side of the aisle. And so they throw us in there, and we talk about issues, and we talk about campaigning, and we talk about how to have civil conversations. And we're sitting there in a room learning things and discussing things 
super right-wing people, super left-wing people, everybody in between, and some that are on the fringe, and we're all doing it very respectfully. And so I think uh, respectfulness is something that we could bring back. Compassion is something that we can bring back. And if we if we use those strategies, I think we can make some progress. Thank you guys so much for being here. We will post our links to our, our websites, and uh, I'm actually going to play this on my radio show, so I'll post a link to that on there if you guys want to re-listen. This is such an important topic, and we are thrilled to see so many faces out there to hopefully learn some of the history of what has gone on with political polarization and some things that we can do to change it. Catherine is an expert in this field, and so she's going to teach us uh, some, some wonderful things and some tricks and strategies that are really used uh, to try to be propaganda in, in every aspect of our lives, in politics, and all else. So, um, Catherine, thank you. And she is a linguist, and I guess the first thing we should ask is, what exactly is linguistics, and how does that relate to the world? Well, thank you, Shannon, and it's wonderful to see everyone here, and these are the people who are concerned and have a clue. Uh, so I'm very glad that you all are here. Uh, just to define linguistics, linguistics is the scientific study of the structural features of language and use. And what's relevant here for this talk tonight is that my own background, there are many different fields in linguistics, my own background is in sociolinguistics, which is the study of how language is used in different groups. So we know that fishermen talk one way with each other, lawyers talk yet another way, and nurses in a hospital will talk another way. They each have their own vocabulary, certain kind of formality, and informality, and and so that was primarily, you know, my background in coming to the language of political talk. And um, so you developed a um, a love of this, and while you were studying in Germany, and I'm wondering, I mean, we're going to talk kind of about how uh, things went in the Nazi direction in World War II. And so what got you interested in German history and what, what sent you over there to study this? Well, I had studied uh, German and international relations as an undergraduate at the University of Colorado. So I started working with American tourists, taking them around Central Europe, managing the tours. And um, I met a lot of people there. And of course, I was seeing the history in front of me. But I was meeting people. Uh, this was when I was in my late 20s, in the 1970s. That wasn't that much later than the end of World War II. And many of the people I was working with were older. So they had witnessed some of these things. And I also met people who had fled from East Germany. And I heard about how bad things were in the communist East. Uh, so that really triggered my curiosity. So um, I came back to the States and got into studying German at Georgetown. And there was a combination of studying linguistics in German, also studying German history in German. So um, I ended up spending a semester at a German university. You told me that uh, while you were there at the German university that a professor uh, told you about something and it was a, a, a seminal moment that really kind of changed the course of your life. Um, so please tell us about that. I, when I spent this time in Europe and especially among Germans, it kept coming back to me that these people were not that much different than others. So what was it that 
could possibly have led to something like the Holocaust. As I studied all these other aspects of German history, the border issues and the economics and the history of authoritarianism and all of that, but still, I couldn't quite get where it was coming from. So I was in a class, uh, this was a linguistics class at a German university, and the topic was the language of persuasion. So we talked about how language is used in advertising to sway people's minds. And then we also discussed the standard language in political campaigns. And the professor also brought in just a few snippets of Nazi propaganda. And we talked about that level of persuasion that really kind of hit me. So I went up afterwards and I spoke with him. And he said, well, you know, if you're very interested in this, there's a book in the library you ought to check out. So he wrote down a title on a piece of paper. And I took it in my hand, and I remember this so clearly, walking across this campus on one of these gray German days. I found my way to the library. I walked up the stairs, found my way to the down the row, and I pulled this book from the shelf. And this was a, an analysis of Nazi propaganda. And as I read it, I, I could feel my reality beginning to shift. For the first time, I began to understand how people's heads could have been turned because I was feeling it viscerally coming into my mind and changing what I was seeing in front of me. So, so I, and I spent the whole afternoon reading it. it. It took a long time because I had to stop about every 10 minutes because it was just so strong. That's amazing that something could have been so powerful that it would have, you know, you have to take a break from reading it and, and really think to understand how that kind of propaganda could have swayed such a large amount of people. I mean, that was some pretty powerful. And we're seeing a lot of that um, rising up again. And as you said that you're back in the United States, you're driving along the road, you're listening to talk radio, and all of a sudden you had another moment that made you pull over on the side of the road. Please tell us about that. Well, after I read that book at that German university, I thought I'll never want to look at this book again. However, I thought it seemed very important. I thought, well, I'm going to photocopy this. And so I did. I threw it up in my attic in 1982. And 10 years later, I was driving around in the West, uh, fiddling with the dial, and suddenly Rush Limbaugh came into my life. And I actually had to pull my car to the side of the road. And I listened for about five minutes, and I realized, okay, this guy's not a Nazi. I could tell that. But there was something about the way he was using language that I recognized. I could tell his listeners were saying, wow, this is, guy's edgy. This is really new. It wasn't new to me. And I went home, and I pulled that book out, and I reread it. And I thought, I'm seeing something here. And I kept waiting. I thought Sam Donaldson would be talking about this, or Cokey Roberts, maybe. <laughs> and I called the Washington Post, actually, and said, look, I'm hearing something here. And they said, we're hearing it, too. But we don't know what to do about it. Why don't you try writing about it? So I just, at that point, began to write about it. Eventually, what I had written uh, was published in an academic book that is now on the shelves of more than 200 universities all the way around the world. So it's out there. That's wonderful that, that they realized that what you were saying was so important that it needed to be copied and spread and, and have people listen to this. I mean, obviously, you know, the talk radio that's happening now and the Nazi propaganda is 
different. I mean, it, there are similar strategies, but it's different. So could you tell us, um, we're going to get into you know, the details of the strategies, but what are the differences between what's going on here and World War II? Because of my experience, not only listening to people who'd escaped from East Germany, but actually reading communist propaganda, that there were similarities between the two. So the first thing I did was I started doing research comparing the right-wing propaganda to the far left. And what I discerned there was that there were strategies of overlap that both sides were using. So I figured that out, and I took that those basic strategies and flipped them up against domestic talk radio in the United States to see. And in fact, I found them being repeated on talk radio. But in the United States, what we're seeing is not the same thing. What we're seeing are the same structures, the way, same way of constructing the language, but the ideology is not the same. So when I say Rush Limbaugh is not a Nazi, he's definitely not a Nazi. He's not talking about racial superiority in the same way that the Nazis were. So, and the other thing, and this took a lot longer for me to figure out, in the United States, this is actually being used as a business model this polarization. And I found, this is a publication from uh, the talk radio industry, okay? And, and there's an article in here by a leading expert in the industry. And it's all about how important it is to promote this kind of you know, fanning of flames between two sides. So it's about attracting listener attention and selling ads. Wow, it's so amazing to me that that powerful stance is about business. It's about ads, and it's, I mean, obviously they do have the ideology, but there's a financial reasoning behind it, and that's, it's really appalling. I mean, because you're just thinking that it's affecting so many people and infecting so many brains on both sides, and uh, and that it is, is fueled by greed is... So, how does linguistics fit into this? Um, you, you know, how does the use of what you've studied, uh, words, language... Um, how is that used? Kind of on a, on a broad scale, how does your linguistics background enable you to notice what they're doing and, uh, and be able to divide it down and, and talk about it? Well, the advantage of being a stay-at-home mom is, is that I started becoming a regular talk radio listener. So before Media matter, Matters was even on the scene, I was using my little cassette tape recorder <laughs> to record this stuff, and I began to document it. And I understood academics... Most of them were just too busy to spend the hours that it required to listen to this stuff. And also, I was really motivated to speak to the average person because I realized that is the person that this is directed to. It wasn't important to me to, even though I did end up publishing for academics, and my concern still is reaching average listeners. So this is what, how I'm using the linguistics. I've tried to pare it down into an understandable approach, uh, and so far, I've gotten very strong audience reaction. Do you have anything you want to say? I would just say, in in conversation, I agree very much with some of the points that you were making about the common ground and about the listening. And I would say, try to remember when you are with a person that you're in conflict with, to let go of judgment and move into gratitude. Relax. Don't tense up. Try to be the bigger person. And look for that being in that person that you're grateful for. And I think that's the perfect way to end this night. So thank you guys. At this point, I would like to direct everyone to Catherine's website. There is 
a link on the podcast webpage takes you right to the page that has videos of Catherine delivering lectures and presentations about these seven strategies that we've been discussing. The audio quality um, of this portion was very compromised, so we want our listeners to be able to get this information clearly. We're including the audio in the podcast, uh, but from this point forward, if you just want to stop and go over to Catherine's website, that is where you will get the detailed information on political polarization and the uh, tactics that are used in propaganda. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. So we're going to launch into the seven main strategies that you have noticed. And so this is going to be kind of a, a class by Catherine. Um, and she's got examples um, of these seven strategies. Uh, not all of them. Uh, some she'll explain verbally. And some we've got some uh, audio and video clips to show uh, examples of exactly what she's talking about. So I will turn it over to you to um, start with strategy number one. Thank you, Shannon. I am going to be citing actual, true, documented examples of Nazi and some communist propaganda here. So I want to be sure that what I'm sharing with you is all, um, you know, precise. So there are seven strategies of polarization that I was able to identify, and I was not the first. Okay, this study of this kind of these polarization strategies, this has been going on since the first decade after the World War, because of course Germans, young Germans, wanted to know how is this how did this happen that our parents got pulled into this. Okay, so there've been like six generations now of six six decades of research. So this is not all entirely original, but I pulled it together in a certain way. So the first uh, strategy is polarity of, in tone, and each one of these strategies has both an object, a goal that the propagandist wants to, um, you know, has in front of him, as well as an effect. So how the listener is affected. And the uh, object of polarity in tone is that the speaker creates an extreme contrast between good and bad. And he does this by using opposite and really intense emotions. And this, the effect of that on the listener is that it sets loose an unrestrained psychological attack of defamation, ridicule, and hate. And this is really important to realize because the Germans were feeling this. They, they felt like suddenly politics was being discussed in a different way. They were sort of thrown off kilter by it. Um, and people would also talk about how when Hitler was speaking, they could hear on loudspeaker this shift in tone when he was talking to his supporters. His tone was very warm and friendly and encouraging. And then when he turned to talk about an enemy, he would become very shrill and harsh. And people could tell just by the tone who he was talking about. Now, there is the first example. I have a few clips, not for every single one of these, few of these strategies. And Shannon's going to play the very first one. This is Michael Savage. You'll just notice here, he's talking, he starts out talking about the immigrants he likes, and then he realizes that some people are going to jump on his case. And so he turns to start criticizing his critics. Are running out of Ireland. The kids are coming here. The young are fleeing to, uh, they're going to jobs in Spain. Where else are they going? It's a new wave of, uh, of Irish. I always liked the Irish. I hope the more of them come here. At least, if we can have illegal aliens, let them be from Ireland for a while. That I can, at least I can understand them. 
Is it wrong? It's, and I, you know, I shouldn't have said that, but I said it anyway. Let me say it again. As long as we don't have illegal aliens, let them be from Ireland. At least I can understand them in case you missed it. Now go into overdrive. Ooh, Michael Savage said, as long as they can be illegal aliens, let them be from Ireland. I can understand them. Blah, blah, blah. This shows implications of racism. Blah, 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 blah. Insensitivity to people of Hispanic descent. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, shove it up your behind. See, my care. Shove it up your ears already. I hate all of you, you left-wing vermin. It's up to me. I deport all of you. You want to get me angry? Go ahead. You think you're the only ones with anger? Wait till you see what happens when you incite the Tea Party people on the right wing. You'll find out what anger is very soon. Go ahead, play with us. Keep giving us those New York smirks. Keep it up. Keep smirking at us. You think this was something. You, you saw nothing yet what's coming in this country if you keep ripping us off and diminishing our stature. Go ahead, keep it up. See if I care what you write about me or what you say about me. I don't give a damn. Go to hell, all of you left-wing communist bastards. All of you snooping on talk show hosts, sending it to Soros' front group, Media Matters. This is something right out of the ex-Soviet Union, and you're participating in it like you're superior. You're nothing. You lower the roaches in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an outhouse. You left-wingers are like roaches in an outhouse looking for the droppings of human beings, you rats, you. Wow. That is a pretty powerful tone right there. So the next uh, strategy is poisoning the well, and the object here for the propagandist is to inflate his own credibility while he belittles critics. So what was going on in Germany then was really a battle between radio, which was a new medium, and newspapers. And Hitler was very quick to understand the power of this new medium of radio. And by the mid-1920s, he was using radio, and party members were hawking his materials on street corners and so on. He called the major newspapers in Berlin and Frankfurt, who were his strongest opponents and critics, the Jewish press. He called their readers, the so-called educated circles, don't pay attention to them. And in East Germany, there was this reputation of Lenin's idea that the press had one overriding task, and that was to continuously maintain rigid opposition to the capitalist press. Conservative hosts repeatedly emphasized there is a battle between the mainstream media and conservative media. Now, that's partly political, but it's also a business strategy, right? So if people aren't reading newspapers, then they're more likely to be listening to radio for their news. And his hosts use a technique called lexical fusion. And lexical fusion is when two words are welded together and they're repeatedly used together. So Nazis called their opponents liberal socialists or Jewish Marxists. And communists called their enemies fascist capitalists. So the effect of this is that a range of critics are fused together into a single threat. The next uh, strategy is ideology over information. And the object here is uh, to define an in-group truth based on values, beliefs, and opinion. So it doesn't have so much to do with facts. It's about more, this is what our group believes to be true. And there's a constant repetition of this word, truth. So the propaganda organ, propagandist takes a position here. Uh, the opposition has no merit, ever. 
There's no middle ground. There's no giving in. It would be traitorous to give in to the other side in any way. And in East Germany, the communist ministry, their propaganda used the phrase Erziehungsbedürftig, which meant that the population is in need of constant, unrelenting instruction in ideology. And that was in all aspects. So everything, media, sports, whatever. It always was seen through the communist lens. So and it was very explicit. Okay, this is our communist group, our communist ideology. And on political talk radio, particularly more on the conservative side, we hear this constant ex- explicit showcasing of ideology. So the liberal viewpoint has no merit ever. And if you're watching Ed Schultz, or Keith Olbermann was particularly bad on this, the conservative viewpoint has no merit whatsoever. Now, those three strategies I just mentioned, all of these, that macro strategy is, that's been used throughout here is to divide an in-group against some kind of an out-group. And the out-group can, can be uh, based on ideology, race, religion, ethnicity. Those three strategies, those still show up in standard political campaigns. But the next four that I'm going to go into, if you hear these, you, are no, you know you're wading into the deeper waters of propaganda. And there's a much stronger shift now to the emphasis on fighting enemies and outgroups. And the German historian Friedrich Meinecke said totalitarians are the terrible simplifiers. And what he meant by that was that they are the terrifying, terrible simplifiers. And these next two strategies um, are, are used to simplify. And the first one of those is scapegoating. And the object here is to divide complex individuals. We're all very complex, right? But to divide them into opposing camps. So it's these people versus us. And to imagine how this works, think of a propagandist standing in the middle of a football field. And on one side, the stands are filled with all of his fans. And on the other side of the stadium are all these problems that go on in society. Unemployment. But he stands in the middle and he said, looks up at his audience and he says, I understand we have a real mess here. But you know, folks, the answer is simple. I am holding it right here in my hand. And he creates this laser beam of blame. He said, it's all the fault of this one group. And if we just rid ourselves of the influence of this group, then that will all go away. And that's basically how Hitler did talk. He just said we just have to get this Jewish influence and the liberal influence out of our society. The effect is this is solution offered. Okay, so if we just purify, if we just clean this out, then we're going to have some kind of better state, some kind of utopian state. So this, this is an example. Go ahead. So this is Gingrich. And Gingrich is talking here. He's running for president. And this is a tape. It was a clip from 2011. He's at CPAC. And his tone isn't particularly harsh, but you can see he's laying blame on one group. The Tea Party has a bit of an integrity problem, as everybody from birthers to open racists to outright Nazis are actually on the team. And no one involved, including its leadership, seems to mind that fact. So the next strategy... This is the fifth strategy, is stereotyping. And the object here is to narrow a concept into a generic form 
And the propagandist to do this uses impersonal and very derisive images. So in East Germany, the capitalist personality was labeled inhumane, the workers' grave diggers, atomic warriors, slimy, nasty, trash, and filth. On political talk radio, we hear labels, progressives, and Democrats labeled arrogant, contemptuous, smug, self-loathing, lazy, and gutless. On conservative political talk radio, conservatives are also stereotyped, but with very positive labels. They are real Americans who have love of country, love of family, who are hardworking, honest patriots, who have bedrock principles and true values. And Limbaugh has a constant refrain, which is, there are Americans and then there are liberals. There are also very ugly and demeaning stereotypes coming from the left. I see this more on the net and on blogs that I'm hearing. 90% of talk radio is conservative. So to go to the liberal language, I go more to the blogs. But you hear these stereotypes like you right-wing, toothless, redneck, Bible-thumping, trailer trash, which can feel funny unless me, for instance, while I was working as a waitress in Colorado for a while, I lived in a trailer. So that doesn't go over too well, right? But the respect for the complexity of each individual is lost. No one likes to be stereotyped. And the effect of this, though, is that the opponents are seen as despicable people, as a group and as individuals. And we have to, okay, so I have a a short clip by Daniel Radigan, who's on the left, and then uh, a clip of Michael Savage again on the right. The Tea Party has a bit of an integrity problem, as everybody from birthers to open racists to outright Nazis are actually on the team, and no one involved, including its leadership, seems to mind that fact. I ride my bicycle every day as I go down to a mall to see people. I can't believe how, how what, what insular people, you, you, I'm on a bicycle, I'm riding to a mall. If I didn't almost hit five stupid women walking with cell phones, they either they see you and they want to make believe that they're immersed in their Blackberry or their phone and using it as a weapon against you, or they don't actually see you, it doesn't matter. These are the moronic liberal women who elected Obama. They don't know anything. They don't know anything. They're lost in their little, oh, they have a handheld device. And all they know is what comes through the handheld device. And they know Obama's great and they don't oppose him as a racist white cracker, even though they're white, they're whites. That's all they know. Ignoramuses. Stupid. The empty, the, the empty people, the empty skirts. Now, if you talk to them and you, you look at them, you look at them from the outside, they're reasonably attractive women, whatever, they dress well. These are the same women who feed their children Oreo cookies for breakfast. Or if they're really sophisticated, they take them to a cafe and they give them a, a, a pastry, a croissant, and a coffee or a cocoa, and they want to know why the kid needs Prozac. The mother hasn't the slightest idea as, her own, as to her own health, nutrition, nothing. She knows nothing about her own health and nutrition. She relies upon uh, experts to guide her with drugs. She's on six or eight prescriptions, and the child is no different. So, you know, I look at things, I'm bewildered by it in a way, on how we've come, become a nation of... Uh, of drug victims and that explains why we have a leader who is so empty of substance so the sixth strategy is manipulation of key moral concepts and this is very insidious the object here is to alter the moral value of key words 
So the social norms of meanings are changed. The negative becomes positive, and positive becomes negative. So some historians refer to this as semiotic territorialization. So you have only the word and the meaning is scooped out and filled in. But before the Nazis, words like ruthless and brutal and fanatical were all negative. But under Hitler, this became positive. And he used lexical fusion to do this. So he repeatedly used phrases like fanatical loyalty. And the word fanatish, which had formerly been negative, became very edgy and popular and was commonly used. And a lot of these words actually were also used by the Jewish population. That has been documented by somebody who kept a, a Jewish gentleman who lost his job at a university, started to record the language. And he was noticing that also within the Jewish community, it just permeated so far. So people would say things like, ich bin tennis fanatiker, I'm a tennis fanatic. So you can imagine people wouldn't break an eye if somebody said, ich bin Hitler fanatiker. And Hitler said that traits like empathy, kindheartedness, and tolerance were only used by the weak, that the German people were made of steel, and Nazism was ruthless, intolerant, and pitiless. And he also referred to giftige Judenhumanität, poisonous Jewish humanitarianism. And I have seen on talk radio a tendency in this direction. Limbaugh, during the healthcare debate, repeatedly referred to compassion fascists and compassion mongers. So that is a lexical fusion there, okay, to make a positive concept negative and destructive, even immoral. And the words are then drained of the humanizing power. It's okay then to release feelings of hostility and meanness previously held in check by their true meanings. If compassion is a negative attribute, who should feel any obligation to be compassionate? To be unfeeling can be seen as positive, good, and even moral. And this, I'm going to last seventh strategy here, and this dehumanizing imagery, and this is very powerful, and I am quite concerned because I'm hearing it on right-wing talk radio. It's creeping into left-wing. It's showing up in public debate and even in personal conversations. And this strategy is so closely associated with Nazism in Germany, with the concentration camps, that personally I have never heard this tactic used by anyone in Germany. Uh, It's absolutely taboo. So the object here is to activate gut-level feelings of revulsion toward the outgroup, and a specific tactic is used, the metaphor. Hitler and the Nazis would call the Jews a plague, an infection, a pestilence, a cancer, tumors, poison, parasites, bacilli, vermin, leeches, bacteria, tuberculosis, ulcers. And one very vivid image that he would use is that Jews are maggots devouring the body of the German people. If your body is being devoured by maggots, what is your natural reaction? What is your visceral reaction going to be? want to eliminate this, right? So the effect of this is that the listener wants to cleanse and rid himself, okay, of this repulsive element. And this can also be directed towards people just on the basis of ideology. So Dachau, the first concentration camp, was used initially for political prisoners. And I actually have it bookmarked in this book, okay, that prior to Hitler, this 
and a metaphor was used extremely rarely. They have documented a few cases of it being used in politics. But it, people were just being inundated with these dehumanizing images. And Taylor took it one step, one small, logical, but devastating step deeper. He called Jews parasites that must be exterminated, eradicated, and obliterated. So he never said that Jews need to be murdered. But he did call for this kind of extermination. I did hear, starting in the 1990s, when I first heard Limbaugh, I heard him use things like liberals are maggot-infested and parasites, and he called Occupy protesters parasites with parasites. Now, he doesn't use it constantly, just once in a while. But when he does, it goes out to 20 million people. I don't know why, but about four months before the 2012 election, he stopped. I have not personally heard Limbaugh using that strategy since then. And I have an example, though, of I recorded him, so we know he was using it. I've got a clip here. You want to talk about who's killing the jobs? Obama was lecturing us all about the importance of job creation as though he knows anything about it. Believe me, folks, he doesn't. This isn't just talk show ranting. This, I'm not, he doesn't know, folks, about job creation. He doesn't have, he, he, has, he has no training in it. He's got no experience in it. He doesn't, he's a parasite. He's like all liberals, they're parasites. They wait for everybody else to do the work and then they feed off of it. And they assume, like all parasites do, that the host is always going to just be there. And the host is always going to be growing and doing what it does to be fed off of. We're just looking at a man and a party that are a bunch of parasites. What he doesn't understand, well, I don't know what he understands, but he is destroying the host, per se. He's destroying the domestic oil business. He's destroying the coal industry. He is, he's causing electricity rates to skyrocket. He's blocking oil drilling in the Gulf and Alaska, the continental shelf. His minions are killing nuclear power. And now he's pushing for increases in taxes on oil. And we never hear a single news report about all the jobs that are being destroyed because of his policies. All we hear about is, gee, will this work for Obama in his re-election? I'll tell you, it's near criminal. And the next clip, um, just let me explain real quickly. This um, is an example of visual images, music, language all being coordinated to create in-groups and out-groups. And this is an ad from the Ground Zero Mosque. At the end of that ad, I go into showing a spliced clip um, from a, you know, somebody just put this up on the internet, a conservative, showing Gibbs, uh, former press secretary, talking about Tea Party protesters showing signs, okay, that accuse the president of being a Nazi. And he spliced this with posters that you'll see from left-wing protests. And then that will end with an ad from the World Wildlife Fund that the international headquarters has rejected, but it, it was aired on a regional basis. So it's, you know, the point was that the left is perfectly capable of using the same kinds of strategies. That was uh, some pretty powerful information uh, that you shared with us.